of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 32, September 2020. So you want to change your accent? A conversation with Jerome Butler. Hi there, Paul here. It's been an exciting month for me since we last met, with several projects involving black accents and dialects. First, the feature film, The 24th, the story of the all-black infantry regiment back in World War I, opened this month. I had coached Trey Byers, who's famous for his role in Empire, the huge Fox TV network hit. He wrote the film with Kevin Wilmot, the director, and stars as William Boston, the leading character. I coached Trey and several of his co-stars in the period black dialects needed. It's a powerful, true story about the Houston riot of 1917. I downloaded it from iTunes, but it's available anywhere you purchase or rent on-demand movies and is now also in wide release in theatres. It was so fascinating to explore black American accents from over 100 years ago. And then, just closed, the Rochester, Minnesota Civic Theatre's production of Pamela Guillen's The Syringa Tree, set in apartheid-era South Africa. It played both to live audiences. It must be one of the very first theatres to do so since the pandemic closed them and was also offered as a live streaming event. I watched the live streaming event, beautifully done, and was so proud of what the two white actors and the one black actor did with the wide spectrum of South African languages and dialects they had to portray, with my help as dialect coach. Congratulations to Misha Johnson, the director, and the cast. And I just wrapped up my Zoom masterclasses for July and August. They went very well. A lot of fun. For my new October-November classes, see Zoom Masterclasses with Paul under the coaching tab on the menu bar of paulmeyer.com. Email me at paul at paulmeyer.com to be added to the mailing list to make sure you get up to the minute announcements of such offerings. Now, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I must say that first, I, I did like languages, but some, somehow I, I did like German language a lot. And, and in the very beginning, I, I didn't fancy so much English. And I think it was the reason of the teacher. Because then when the teacher changed, somehow the, the one was so exciting. And, and uh, then, then I really wanted to learn more. If you guessed Finland, congratulations. It was Ideas Finland 3, which I recorded in 2004. To hear the whole recording, search for Finland 3 at dialectsarchive.com. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? What I would like to do is take the law of it, so I would like to write at some point, um, direct go on the other side of the camera so I know the whole ins and outs of it as well so I've got a bit of appreciation for the people that who are doing those jobs as well uh, but ideally I think it's about taking the idea and making sure the idea is finished at the other end whether that be that the idea needs to be written it might sometimes mean that I'll write it or I'll get somebody to write it sometimes it'll mean that I'll need a producer or I'll produce it and then other times I'll need a director or I'll direct it just to see if I take an idea and make sure it comes out the other side of the finished product. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking.
My guest this month is Jerome Butler, a very successful dialect coach in television and film. For more information about Jerome, just click his links on the paulmeyer.com webpage devoted to this month's podcast. Hi, Jerome. Thanks for joining me. I wanted to start off by thanking you so much for your introduction to your South African contacts, which led me to uh, make the delightful acquaintance of Dr. Joyce Sukumane, who lives near Johannesburg. And she's a uh, black South African linguist. And we had a wonderful conversation about African languages and dialects and language policy in the post-colonial era. And um, Mm. she will be my podcast guest in... uh, October. I very much look forward to hearing that. Now, let me just check my assumption. Were you for a millisecond there getting ready to say Joburg? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a mouthful, isn't it, Johannesburg? Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I suspect that one out of deference to the natives of the people who actually live there, one wants to leave that abbreviation to them and honor them with the full pronunciation of their wonderful city. Absolutely. So, so Jerome, this was uh, my meeting with you and with Joyce all came about because of my coaching of Pamela Guillen's The Syringa Tree, which is now open or will be with the time this airs and is going very well. So it really got me on a kick of African languages and accents. And I know that you have quite a history of involvement in that continent. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of your projects on African themes involving African actors or involving American actors uh, impersonating African characters. What's, What's some of your most memorable projects in that area? Well, the first time that I went to South Africa was... Actually, it was Southern Africa. I went to Namibia to work on an HBO show called Generation Kill. Wonderful. They shot in uh, Namibia. They ended up shooting also in South Africa. So Uppington did some shooting for several weeks there and then went over to Mozambique. And then again, went to South Africa for another film that uh, was called Machine Gun Preacher. Uh, that was shot both in Detroit and then in uh, South Africa. That was that was really cool. What was the nature of the dialect coaching you were doing? Both times it was for Americans. There were American accents. So the first time was uh, working with Alexander Skarsgård. I was working with him for his character. He was playing um, a a Marine during the Second Gulf War. My job also was to work with a group of, the South, of South African actors who were playing Americans. How do South African actors take to American accents? Did they, did they Wonderfully. pass? Were they able to Wonderfully. Sure they were. Wonderfully, you, yeah. Your expert tutelage? Took to it very well. Are South African actors a little bit like Australian actors? If you want an international career, you've got to be able to do an American accent. Is that the way it is for South African actors? I would say that is the case. They don't have nearly the tradition of that crossover that uh, Australian and New Zealand actors have. Mm-hmm. So I would say that there are that there is less of that transference that happens 
with South Africa, but I think that you're going to see more of it in the future, for sure. I do a lot of work with Australian actors, you know, making their entree into Hollywood and sometimes even wanting to pass it auditions as American. Well, for sure. If you're going to be a dialect coach working with film and television, you're going to work with a lot of Australians and a lot of actors from the UK, for yeah. sure. They all, and, uh, and they tend to be very good. The, the Aussies, I think, are marginally, or dare I say it, am I letting that slide down in saying that the Aussie actors are <laughs> slightly ahead of the British actors in being able to pass as American? Well, I mean, if there's anyone who could say it, I think it's you. You're, you're, you're sort of, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think you still have enough of, uh, enough flags from that team that you yeah. could actually, uh, <laughs> by the way, I, I gotta say, you are killing it with, uh, with this podcast, Paul. It's just absolutely. Oh, thank you. It's absolutely wonderful. It's just a font of information. You know, they're so interesting listening to the uh, podcast that you did, Australian. I think you're referring to the work I did with Linda Nichols Gidley, a wonderful Australian dialect coach uh, and an idea editor, and formerly teaching at the uh, at NIDA, the National Institute of Dramatic Arts in Sydney. And I have to say that when I was working with her dialect class students, uh, I, in a master class situation, as I, as I did uh, several years in a row, Boy, were those people good. They came to the table really prepared and highly motivated for that international career. Sometimes I was just plain redundant. I couldn't offer them anything to improve the work that Linda had done. Part of what I was really interested in was the idea of teaching actors and helping individuals who are interested in accent modification. You're talking about the Australian actors who already had, who seemed to have a real strong leg up, who you had worked with, there is something so powerful about a path that begins to become very well-worn, that serves to really encourage individuals. They see possibilities. They see the way, the steps that they need to take. When you actually have 20 years of uh, a very strong international crossover uh, with with actors from your country, you begin to see that path very clearly. And that's something that I think will begin to change things as it's happening slowly in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the old master apprentice model, you know. That's great, yeah. Well, let's jump into the question of, of what's sometimes called accent reduction. I, 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 don't, I don't think anybody in our business is really comfortable with that term, even though it has wide currency, accent modification. And, and you posed in, in preparation for this podcast, you posed a provocative question. Why should someone want to change their accent? Are there ever reasons why a non-performer should be advised to change their accent? I hope that I said accent modification. I meant to say that. Did I? Um, oh, no, I'm not sure. I, I still, <laughs> I still advertise my services as an accent reduction simply because it's got such wide currency, but I'm very happy with modification or simply accent training. Whatever we call it, we mean the same thing. Non-performers who for personal, professional, aesthetic reasons want to modify the way they speak their English. 
what's interesting and the reason that I sort of bring that up and check myself is because it's a conscious effort that I've made to not call it accent reduction. Here's the simple answer. I think people should talk the way they talk. That's what I believe. And I think as a dialect coach, that's always the most interesting thing for me is when somebody hasn't modified their dialect or their accent or changed it. But of course, we both know that change happens on its own. The question of whether someone should change their accent, all I could say is this. I can't imagine anything more frustrating than being fluent in a language, understanding everything that is being said to you, and still having people understanding that there's a barrier between you and those you're trying to communicate. Maybe that's the only reason when it's getting in the way of your communication somehow? Of course, I don't know how much accent modification business you do in contrast to your dialect coaching for actors. It's about 70-30 for me, I guess, 70% 70, 70 in the performing arts and 30% in the, in the corporate world or the world of accent modification. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and typically they are... Uh, people coming to English from an, another first language. It's much rarer for, for me to be asked by a New Yorker to, to modify his or her accent towards right. some perceived general American or, for a, or even, for a, even for a Southerner, an American Southerner, to want to modify his or her accent towards some perceived norm. By and large, all of those cases, all of the accent modification clients of, I take are... Um, coming to English as a second language. And, mm -hmm. and I, I can't argue with them. They say I'm not received with as much credibility. If I mm -hmm. have my strong first language accent, I want to be taken seriously. I don't want the question of where are you from to be, to be always at the forefront of our conversation. I want to mm -hmm. pass as something closer to someone born and raised in the United States or in UK, because some of my clients want the British pronunciation. It's rarer these days. It used to be the norm that British English, back in the heyday of my country, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, British British English was <laughs> the, the the norm globally, of course. But then that was when we had an empire, <laughs> and now America has the empire by a different name, and it's American English that is preferred by most clients speaking a a native pronunciation. Mm. Yeah, both of those examples that that it's very rare to get New York wanting to, or, or Southern wanting to move toward a more general American. 50 years ago, 30 years ago, that was not uncommon. Absolutely. You know? I'm very much in agreement with you. I think it's a question we should always ask ourselves. Why would we advise anyone to change their accent? In the ideal world, we would celebrate that diversity of Englishes. You know, God knows there are as many English accents as there are people who speak the language. And most of the accent reduction or, or modification clients who come to me thinking that they want clearer communication are already quite intelligible. And there's no intelligibility issue. They're yes. perfectly understandable. And that's the first thing I reassure them of, unless there is, unless there is some ambiguity and unless their meaning 
is constantly in doubt. But when their command of grammar and vocabulary uh, and their fluency in the language is perfect and is just an accent that's from somewhere else, why should we want to change that? It's a shame that we, that we do. But I guess I come down to the point that we are still and probably always will be very tribal. And we engage in, as human beings, in many, many different behaviors, dress, the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the way we walk, the way we talk, uh, ways in, in which we sort of reaffirm our membership in a particular group or subgroup or, or tribe, as I like to call it. And, and, and scientific studies show that someone who speaks in an accent other than the one spoken by the group they want membership in has less credibility, measurably less credibility. And that's a, a sad commentary on our parochialism as human beings, I suppose. It makes you feel even more respect for anyone who holds on to their mode of communication, their comfortable mode of communication, and finds a way to still have prestige but it's tough yeah i mean how sad it is that folks in india for whom english has been a first language you know ever since they kicked the brits out mm -hmm. and so um, indian english is not an accent but but a legitimate dialect alongside you know hindi and urdu and and, and tamil etc how sad that that dialect should have less credibility and less respect and and less prestige than it does and that they have to if they're going to compete and be understood on the on the world market and the world community that they should be feel compelled to seek an accent modification coach like you or me well this is something that i'm very interested in your take on and it's something that the great david crystal talks about in terms of what we can probably expect in the next 25 to 50 years in terms of the number of people speaking the kinds of english the styles of english that we would not consider today in the standard arena mm -hmm. There's going to be more people speaking styles of English that are going to be different than a general American style, for sure, or a British style. And if I take that down to a smaller level, the tiny little things that are beginning to happen with just English here in America, that if you're teaching in a theatrical training program, you sometimes feel like you're fighting against a tide that cannot be stopped. Yes, and I'm I'm certainly learning. I'm a huge fan of John McWhorter's Lexicon Valley. I'm sure you tune in from time to time. And the the overarching lesson that John McWhorter teaches us as a linguist is that language is constantly on the move. It's a tide, as you say, and it's an unstoppable tide. And we can't stand on the seashore and hope to, to hold back the tide. So I suppose it's always that balancing act between taking the best of the pronunciation of yesteryear in many cases and, and embracing the, the new trends. That's a balancing act. And of course, we in the theater and on film, we are, life is our model, holding the mirror, as it were, up to nature. So we don't want to hold on to the iconography of yesteryear's pronunciation. We've got to embrace the new 
the new pronunciations that are always coming at us over the horizon. And you taught for two and a half, three decades uh, at the, the university level in training programs. And did you, do I have that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been a teacher in drama schools and universities uh, pretty much my whole life and having a parallel career with acting and with directing and, and as dialect coaching. So it's, it's been wonderful to have those parallel careers. Yeah. But that's always the question that we used to pose far more frequently. What is the standard accent we should teach? Um, yes, that, this is what that, I'm interested. That question in drama schools and universities is far less relevant these days. In Brit British drama schools, when you would train wannabe actors, up-and-coming actors in received pronunciation, mm. it was widely believed when I was being trained that without that style of speech as your everyday speech, as your, as your default pronunciation, you would not succeed in the profession. That here is gone, of course. Yes. Uh, and while British actors need to have command of RP, of received pronunciation, as well as general American, uh -huh. they don't have to have it as their default everyday professional way of speaking, which is why actors always surprise their audiences on talk shows when they you know, they come out with the native Scottish accent and we've only had them, we've only had them in American roles or British roles. How do you deal with the idea that you do want actors to have certain skills, certain facility uh, with the language? How would you express it to your students, giving them the power or the agency to increase the likelihood that they would be committed to learning skills and dialect and speech techniques that were outside of perhaps their comfort zone, their awareness, their peer group, and at the same time uh, knowing that, that, that they would have ownership over that yeah. without it taking them over. Exactly. I don't know how you feel about it, but here's the way I think of it, that I tell actors in training that they must not be trapped within the behavior set that they inherited by accident. If yeah. so, they're going to be confined. Actors have to be able to move out of the behaviors that they inherited by birth and, and life experience so they, they can embrace any behavior any accent. So we're not teaching one privileged accent. It's not as if this is the English thou, thou shalt speak to be considered an educated, sophisticated human being. No, there are so many styles of, of behaviors. And it goes for physical organization of your, of your, of the way you walk, the way you behave, what, what you do with your arms, what you do with your face. All of this is cultural and all should be adaptable. Any good actor should be able to move outside the accidental behavior set that they inherited by birth or life experience. For sure. There are a couple of different roads that ultimately lead to the same path uh, when an actor is middle-aged. I think that actors who do not come through drama programs sometimes will come up through the ranks. They're, ch they're child actors periods of time, but they've been acting sometimes continuously from the 10, 11 years old. 
when I'm on shows and I see these young actors in their teens sometimes, they're tremendously skilled. Their level of sophistication and their level of ability, understanding how to play a moment. And as young actors often are, very connected to something instinctual in a way that actors who are in a training program oftentimes are not. That's a very nice point. And it's, I think you're now into the sort of mysterious or murky aspects of the work that yes. you spoke about in, in an email with me. Yes, how, how an actor's imaginative connection with their humanity can create authentic results that have you know, haven't been dictated or prescribed. I think that's a semi-mystical area that is fascinating to me. Noam Chomsky is, is no longer considered to be at the cutting edge of any sort of linguistic theory, but, you know, he did have this idea of deep-based structures underneath the top layers to where, you know, how does somebody who who knows how to say the ball is green, how does that child all of a sudden be able to come up with something that they've never said before? I want the green ice cream and putting things together. And it is, I think it's mysterious because it's not something you can depend on. Yeah. So re releasing the mysterious is what you're talking about, which lies in sort of contradistinction to the by the numbers thing that often kicks in when we're training people. You know, we, we train people by easily measurable and communicable techniques and skills, and we hope it leads to the desired result. But yet there's a, another path that's much more mysterious or murky. Here's a tangential question. I'm, I'm teaching a masterclass on approaching foreign language accents at the moment, uh, having a great time with my dozen students in that class. And I find myself saying more and more, and I'd love your take on this, that with foreign language accents, with you know uh, Japanese, Afrikaans, uh, Swedish, whatever, foreign language accents, there is a kind of Disneyfication expectation. Uh, audiences and perhaps casting directors and directors expect to be able to hear the stereotypical model from an actor, when in fact in real life the foreign language speaker rarely conforms to the stereotype. It's a little bit like Epcot at Disney World down in Orlando. You have the you have the country pavilions around the lake, and you look at a building, oh yeah, that's Swiss. Look at another building, oh yeah, Canadian. So they've extracted all of the quintessential footprint details of that country's architecture and dress and and given you something that is recognizably and definably Japanese or Chinese or, or Canadian, even though the real you go to those countries and you don't recognize that at all. You don't see that style of architecture when you visit those countries. And I think it's a little bit like that with foreign language accents, that we expect our actors, when they're playing an accent role, we expect them to deliver what we expect to hear. Whereas, in fact, the as we listen to idea and the foreign language accent speakers on the on idea it's very often extremely difficult to 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 label those accents and if you hadn't known in advance that ah oh, this is a french speaker or an italian speaker or 
or a Namibian speaker, you simply wouldn't be able to guess. Because real life doesn't conform to the Epcot model. Do you feel under, under a constraint when you're teaching foreign language accents or coaching foreign language accents to, to deliver something that's recognizable each time? Or are you free of that constraint, do you think? What you're saying is just, it's, it's amazing what you're saying. I'm sitting here, I'm biting my finger because there's so much that I want to say, and yet it's too much. First of all, yes, I agree with everything that you just said. I also think that actors want something to hold on to, so they're actually looking for those recognizable structures that they can identify. That's another thing that's going on. Producers are trapped within those same kind of models that are not reflective of the reality of the world that we're living in. Mm -hmm. I was once directed by a director. I was playing a German international art dealer, someone tra who traveled the world, whose English was, was perfect, and who would never have fallen into the, uh, the stereotype of substituting Ws and Vs, you know. Uh, and yet the director said, when I gave him something that was a little ambiguous in my Ws and Vs, you know, instead of saying, uh, instead of saying West and World for West and World, Mm -hmm. you know, he wanted me to conform to the stereotype and directed me out of that more ambiguous accent that um, would have would have been more truthful con considering the uh, the character. I've had that exact same experience on a set with an actor who actually wasn't somebody who I was working with, but this guy was playing. He had one line. <laughs> he had one line and. I was working with somebody else on the show and he was German and he had worked very, very hard and had a very, very light German accent. As we spoke, because he knew that I was the coach, he actually went on a bit of a rant about how he wasn't, a well, he was offended by it, but he basically said that it was insulting, the sort of ham-fisted German accents that we get, you know, in television and films. And mm -hmm. he, you know, and he says, I don't speak that way. And I've worked very hard not to speak that way. When it came time for his scene, he did it once. And I think he had a line of, uh, you know, uh, is this your car or where's your car? He had like a, a line or two. Cut. The director says, could you dial up the uh, German accent? Could you make it a little, uh, little stronger? Where is, and the, it was, car? Where <laughs> is the car? <laughs> I need to see your papers. Where is the car? <laughs> I yeah, felt bad for the guy. Yeah, and we are surely, if we're supposed to hold the mirror as to up to nature, as Hamlet said, then to serve up the stereotype and to perpetuate this idea of these sharp divisions between one country and another, then we're serving nobody uh, responsibly. We've got to embrace the, the ambiguity of life. And for the arts to pander to audience expectation uh, and deliver what they expect to hear doesn't challenge them, doesn't push them beyond their, their own narrow conceptions of what reality is, out beyond the shores of their own narrow existence. Agreed. However, in the defense of this particular situation, it was television, the guy was there to reinforce 
a particular idea. That's what his purpose was. There wasn't any time for him to be ambiguous. Or to establish a character of, of complexity and nuance. He, in no time. Mind, it wasn't, wasn't possible. Yes, it wasn't possible. He couldn't do anything that was going to ruin our drive toward the dramatic conclusion that, that this was nothing more than a moment in service of. And so it becomes tricky. That's one of the things that we're doing as coaches. We're saying, what's the story? How is this sound going to serve the story? And, you know, what are the kind of things that are going to get in the way of, of the telling of, of that? And, of course, you want to design things. You want to be as clear as possible. And you want to be as truthful as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. But and sometimes you're working with somebody who, who insists upon that. And that's when, that's when things are always uh, the best. As you say, we coaches and the actors we help, we're there to, uh, to aid the telling of the story. And if we're not truthful to the story and the story's needs, and we're playing our own agenda, Germans never speak this way, uh, then that may defeat the story at that particular moment. So what I think the challenge is there is to go deeper and to actually get more specific about the ancestral sounds that still remain. That becomes very exciting to me. What are the, the whispers and the hints of the rhythms that haven't changed because of, of what they're still doing with those final voiced consonants? Because they're actually devoicing them just a tiny bit is there still a sort of a, a vestige of the old rhythm there? In my uh, teaching of foreign language accents, I'm always struck by the fact that in real life, the German, since we mentioned German, the gross mispronunciations are the world. I, I'm really fond of the world. So you can hear all those gross mispronunciations going on. Whereas in truth, we need to give that German character the same benefit of the doubt as we would give ourselves. If we were to be learning French, we would want to go for those obvious mistakes. We would want to learn the uvular trill, really, really. Mm -hmm. We would, in fact, make every effort to master the sounds that are not native to us. Now, in fact, the, the, the less than brilliant actor will keep those gross mispronunciations when, in fact, the character would have worked hard, like your onset guy, to have corrected the TH and the W and the L. Mm -hmm. And it would be the subtle mis mistakes, the subtle mispronunciations, as you've hinted at, that would remain. But, in fact, with many an actor, you get the exact reverse of what happens in real life. You get none of the subtle mistakes and all of the gross mistakes. Or you could actually deal with the moments where it does get dialed up to closer to a five, where it usually is sitting, simmering at a one and a half or a two. And in moments of, of emotion, mm -hmm. maybe a sound or two pops out. It's all about the storytelling, I think, right. which, is, uh, which, is, which is interesting. I'm fond of saying to actors, let the acting drive the accent rather than the other way around. So as you say, at moments of high passion, great panic, you know, that won't be the same as when you're in a formal situation and you've got a gin and tonic at your elbow and you're perfectly in control of the situation. Actors need things to hold on to. 
I think. And I think that the, that audience members need things to hold on to as well. I mean, look, we're, we're telling stories. And I think that one thing that's, that is becoming much more interesting with the content revolution that's happening is that we're hearing stories that challenge our assumptions. It kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier. The world is not as we have grossly perceived it for so long. You remember back in the, in the day, I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, it was really was, it was 10, certainly 15 years ago, 20 years ago, for sure. You, you saw a medical show on television and it looked nothing like a hospital actually looked nothing like it. And it's only been in the last decade where you've actually started to see shows on television that reflected the ethnic diversity that was inside of every hospital that everybody went into. So a lot of times, it's, you know, the, the storytelling it's, it's, lags behind yes, the reality. Yes. Put bluntly, you get to choose between pimping for audience expectation or challenging and, and growing audience's perception of reality. Well, you know, I mean, look, Paul, it's hard out here for a pimp, you know, so you know, you got to understand that's, that's not an easy job either. <laughs> <laughs> you laid it right out there for me. You laid it right out there for me. <laughs> so I was working on a project and, and the actor was doing a New York dialect. You get into the first few days of shooting and, the producers come and, and this is, this actor is a, you know, he's the, the star of the movie and the producers come over to me and they say, what do you think about his accent? I mean, what, is it sounding strange or weird? To, what's going on with that? They were, they were perplexed, right? I said, well, first of all, I love what he's doing. The character is wonderful, but that's not my job. All I can say to you is, what he's doing is right for the region. It's right for what we have actually said, where we wanted the character to come from. It's right. I haven't heard that. That it's not anything specifically that I we listen to, but it certainly has little pieces of everything we listen to for sure. You know, I can't fault it in that regard. Basically, that's kind of where I I left it. Well, okay, whole film goes by. It's done couple of weeks after uh, the movie, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I would be walking around and I would say, oh, that's, that's very much like, uh, what's his name's coat that he wore in that movie. And it's like, oh, that kind of looks like uh, that person's boots. And I'd be on the subway and I would hear, I said, that kind of sounds like something. So I would hear like a little remnant of something, right? One day, I'm having my bathroom worked on. They're reglazing the tub. Guy walks in. He is dressed like the character the actor played. He has the same haircut. He looks like him and sounds exactly like him. The character walks into my <laughs> house. Literally. It was spooky. What he tapped into... I just look at that. He pulled something out 
And I don't even know where he pulled it from. Yes, our work had something to do with it. And yes, as we were working, I had to make sure that, you know, let's make sure that we kind of keep it over here. And I, I, I created the corral that he stayed inside of. But how this guy pulled out something that I had not heard before, not in that kind of order of relationship to vowels and consonants, and have it be so authentic, and then to have the universe just make sure that I was aware that that sort of thing could happen by having <laughs> the human being walk into my life, spooky and quite a gift in actual fact. That's a great story to, to close the show with, I think. There's so much we could talk about, and uh, I hope you'll come back for another podcast at some point, and we can talk about all the things we didn't get to talk about. But for now, thanks so much for joining me, Jerome. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And before I go, before I go, I must say how appreciative I am of the work that you do on the IDEA website. I have been recommending the website for more than a decade. It's a legacy of your commitment. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thanks. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Jerome Butler. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter, at Dialect Paul. My guest in October will be Dr. Joyce Sukumane, the South African linguist. We'll be talking about African languages and dialects in the post-colonial era. Very interesting. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>